0: In the fall of 2010, we did a survey of the books of the Bible in our spiritual success class that meets on Sunday morning at 10. And one of the studies that we did in that 10-month overview class of the Bible was a study on the books of Samuel. And so in some ways, much of what we see here tonight will be a reminder of that class from five years ago, if you remember. Uh, And if not, it's good that you're here because uh, uh, we all would do well to understand kind of the bigger picture of what uh, the author is trying to convey here. And I want to work through First uh, and Second Samuel consecutively because when the book was written, it was originally one book. It was the book of Samuel, and we split it up into two. Um, in fact, prior to the 1500s, the Hebrew Bible maintained Samuel as a single volume. But the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, had already been separated into two books back in the third century. And this was a time in which the um, documents were written primarily on scrolls. And so um, the original would have been written on a scroll. The scroll was, the original Hebrew that is, would have been one book, one scroll. It was one foot high by 70 feet long. And that would have been all in Hebrew. However, when they translated it into Greek, uh, which was the common language of many people during the 3rd century, they, it took them two scrolls to write it out instead of one. And again, these are probably the same size scrolls. Does anyone know why the Greek translation would be that much longer? Twice as long? All Greek, to you? Yeah. Yeah, the Hebrew language doesn't use vowels. They use vowels in speaking, but in writing, uh, the original Hebrew, um, they, they only have consonants. So, you can imagine how much smaller, more compact the language is. Now, when we when I went through seminary and studied Hebrew, they have vowel points, so they're still only like, most words are three letters, three-letter wor- root words, so like the word um, king is malik, M-L-K is the word king, and you don't have any vowels. In the original, you just had to... They, they just knew from the context what it was. Now, that MLK could also mean something else. you had different vowel points. But but the point is, is that the, the Greek did have vowels. And so, as a result, you have two scrolls. And they split it up at a natural point, a natural breaking point, between the, the reign of Saul and the reign of David. That's what Second Samuel is primarily about, is when David comes to reign. And so, the point that I'm making is that originally this was written as one volume. The book the book of Samuel. Same thing is true for Kings and Chronicles. One book for each of those. When they translated them into Greek they split them up into two. So I think it would be helpful for us to study them as a whole. Um, now, you might be thinking well all the first and seconds of the Bible are all split up because of that reason but it's just Samuel Kings and Chronicles that are that way. All the firsts and seconds and thirds in the New Testament were not for that reason. They're different reasons. They're actually separate letters at separate times. It's appropriate to, to study those separately. But here I think it's important for us to study them as one. Um, I, I tell you that because it, it might be easier for us just to have this broken up and just do 1 Sam, First Samuel uh, by itself and then do Second Samuel, let's say, another year or two down the road. But I think we need to understand the book as a whole and I think it should be studied together. And so because we are going to study it together, both First and Second Samuel, uh, based on how I have it laid out right now, it's probably going to take about 58 sermons, which is going to make this the fourth longest series since I've been here. The longest was Acts on a Wednesday night. It was 68 uh, sermons. And then Proverbs was also on a Wednesday night. That was 65 sermons. And then Genesis was 62 sermons. And so this will be the fourth longest uh, if it stays as it is. But I hope you'll be able to, to work through it and be able to see here at the beginning part of the bigger picture that we're trying to see, that, that this isn't just a bunch of stories that are kind of unrelated. This is all part of the whole, and it fits into the, the, the whole of Scripture. And that's how God intended it to be. Well, the book of Samuel focuses on three main human characters. Can anyone guess who those three characters are? How about just guess one of them? Samuel, that's a good guess. He is the very first main character of the book, and I mentioned the other two, Saul and David. Okay, So it's primarily about those three men, and uh, we'll see that as we, we go through and probably even as we survey it uh, this evening. As far as the setting goes, the from the Pentateuch, the first five books, to Joshua, the command was to obey the book of the law. However, you remember that once Israel possessed the land, it didn't take too long for them during the period of the judges that the law started to be ignored, wasn't it? And they needed God to deliver them. The conquest of Canaan was followed quickly by moral degeneration as Israel allowed the worship of Baal to overtake the worship of the true and living God. So the judges God sent along, they would come along and give the people temporary solace from this disoriented state in which they were in. And by the end of Judges, you remember the the refrain that was in the book of Judges. There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what? It was right in his own eyes. And it was at that time that, that, uh, well, obviously, let's try to connect this here to our previous series, Ruth. Ruth was living during that time. Ruth and Boaz was living during the period of the Judges, likely during the time of Gideon. Um, But it was at that time, the end of the Judges, that Samuel came onto the scene. And that's really where we pick up the story here in chapter 1 of 1 Samuel. The book begins with the story of Samuel in chapters 1 through 7. Samuel was the last judge of Israel and the first great prophet of Israel since Moses. And um, sadly, we don't know. I mean, maybe not sadly. I guess it's providential that we don't know who the author of Samuel is. Um, You know, obviously... The fact that people call it first and second Samuel seems to indicate that Samuel might have written it, but you remember, Samuel dies uh, I think towards the end of first Samuel or the beginning of second Samuel. So he's not going to be around during the reign of David during all of the reign of David that is. And so someone else had to write the second half, and we don't know for sure. So some people think that Samuel wrote the first half, that is first Samuel, and then someone else wrote the second half. But what we do know is that the events of Samuel, that is the books of Samuel, take place over the course of 135 years. So it's not a first-hand account, probably, most likely, right? It's probably something that had been recorded by one person and then actually edited and and written by another person. That's probably what happened. it could have even happened uh, long after David was dead, maybe um, 50 to 400 years after he was dead. No one knows for sure. The, the events in the book begin with The birth of Samuel, which was in 1105 B.C. And then the end of 2 Samuel is about the end of David's reign, which we know is in 970 B.C. So from 1105 B.C. to 970 B.C. Now just to get uh, your bearings on where we are in Old Testament history, it's good to remember those four dates. I like to call four hooks of Old Testament dates. And what are they? The first one is 2000 B.C., which is during the time of which person lived? 2000, Abraham. Okay, then 1500, Moses. And then 1000, that's where we are right here, David. And then 500, Nehemiah. Okay, he's, uh, we, we finished him a couple couple months ago, I think it was. If you want to keep going, you have Christ and zero. And then um, Augustine was in 400. I don't, I don't know of any famous Christians in 500, so we will just say Augustine in 400, Basil in 1,000, Calvin in 1,500, and then insert your name in 2,000, okay? If you're around in 2,000. If you weren't, some of you younger people you have to use your parents' name. Alright, so that's, that's those four main dates for the Old Testament. Abraham, 2,000, Moses, 1,500, here, David, 1,000, and Nehemiah, 500. If you can remember those four dates you can pretty much remember or you can figure out where in Old Testament history you you are. If I say Joseph, you could figure out that that's probably around 1800, 1900 B.C. You know, if I said somebody like Solomon, you could figure that out that around 900, 950 B.C. So those four dates, I think, are, are uh, helpful in getting your bearing, bearings. Well, as far as an outline, um, I think... The book um, breaks up pretty nicely between the rise and fall of various characters. These three main ones is, is really what it's about. In chapter 1 through chapter 7, 1 Samuel 1 through 7 is about the decline of Eli and the rise of Samuel as prophet. So Eli shows himself to be inadequate as a prophet. And God says, I'm going to take away your house, Eli. I know that you are a prophet, and, and right now the line of the prophets goes through you, but I'm going to take that away, and I'm actually going to transfer it to another family, a distant cousin, Samuel's family, and Samuel would take over. So the chapters 1 to 7 is the decline of Eli, while at the same time the rise of Samuel. And then in 1 Samuel 8 through 1 Samuel 15, you have the rise of Saul as king. Remember the people cried, we'll, we'll look at some of this. You know, we need a king. So God gives them the kind of king that they want. And um, and then 1 Samuel 16 to the end of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 16 to 31, the decline of Saul and the rise of David. Okay, so those kind of happen concurrently. Uh, the decline of... Uh, that, didn't, that didn't work there. Let me see. Yeah. The decline of Saul and the rise of David as king. And then, of course, 2 Samuel is all about the reign of David as God's king. What does it look like? for there to be a king after God's own heart. What does it look like for a man to um, to, to take the throne in the first place? And so, the first part of Second Samuel is about David's activities after Saul's death, and then David as king, the king over both Judah and Israel. And then, remember, much of the end of the book is about Absalom's rebellion and David's final days as king. So that's where we're going, and uh, we'll do a survey here in just a second. But before we get there, let me just... Try to put out for you a, a theme that, that we talked about when we, um, when we did a survey class several years ago, and that is that God will rule over his people through the king he, he chooses. God will rule over his people through the king that he chooses. That's what First and Second Samuel are about. This king is supposed to obey the covenant, follow the word of God if he's going to be a good shepherd of God's people. He can't just kind of do it his own way. I mean, this is the next step in Israel's history. Right? Now they have the land. This is following the conquest. They have the land. They, they, they need, now need a king to shepherd and lead and care for the people. And this king was going to also represent um, the people before God. God's going to deal with them on the basis of whether or not they obey or disobey the king that God has placed over them, and so the king has this great task of effectively carrying the people on his shoulders, um, and um, and their destiny is bound up in his actions. That's why when you get through the book of uh, through the books of the kings, that's what it's all about. The the nation rises and falls based on the leadership of the kings. In many ways, those kings are um, are a microcosm of the whole nation. How they respond to God is in many ways how the the nation will respond. And so it's important. God wants them to know each king. It's important for them to know that they must obey God's word. They must obey God's word. Well, let's walk through these two books. Um, the books that are about the rise of the King of Israel. Well, in 1 Samuel chapters 1 through 7, there's no king at all. It's really not about a king. It's it's about the prophet, as we mentioned, Samuel. And this is interesting because prophets had the responsibility of guarding what? What were prophets supposed to do? They had to guard and speak the Word of God. They had to make sure that people weren't just ignoring it, putting it aside, um, Disobeying it, they would come out and speak as heralds on behalf of God and say, "This is what the Almighty King says to do." And uh, and that's how the book begins with someone who has to guard and bring the word of God to the people, a prophet. And by starting the story of this rise of the kings with a story about a prophet, it reminds us that even though the king rules and reigns in Israel, he does not rule and reign above the Word of God. He doesn't come in and say, you know what, now I'm king and I'm going to be exalted above the Word of God. The prophet comes in at the very beginning and says, no, here's what rules. It is the Word of God and you will submit yourself to it. Not the other way around. God governs His people by His Word and that includes the king. No one is above the Word of God. He is to submit Himself to the Scriptures just like everyone else. And so, throughout the many stories to come, the many different kings that will come across over the study of the, these two books, there will always be prophets. There will always be prophets there to call the king to covenant faithfulness. The buck does not stop at the king of Israel. It stops with the word of God. Do you remember what what Moses promised in Deuteronomy chapter 17? God says, when I put a king in place, they're supposed to do something when they first get into office. What was it? What was it? Okay, before that, that is part of it. That's part 1B. Okay, what's 1A? They're supposed to copy it. They have to make a copy for themselves and then read it. How often? Once a year, good enough? Maybe at the Day of Atonement? How often? Every day. Now, obviously we know not all the kings did that. But that was the, that was the expectation of God back in Deuteronomy 17 long before they had a king. Right? Moses. Remember what, what year was Moses, roughly? 1,500. Now, he's saying 500 years from now. He didn't know the exact time, but 500 years from now. When the king finally comes, make sure... God's telling Moses, and Moses is telling the people, make sure that they make a copy of the Scriptures for themselves. And then they read it every day. Why? Because the Word of God is supreme. It stands over the king. And that's why the books of Samuel begin with this prophet who's speaking on behalf of God. It makes sense that if God's going to establish His king... That he's going to do it on the basis of the Word of God. Now turn to chapter eight, because we look at the second part, which is the rise of Saul as king, in chapters eight to fifteen. The rise of Saul as king. In chapter eight, the story of the king gets started. And there's just one problem. Israel is actually sinning by asking for a king. Now, even though a king had been promised in Genesis 49, and it was assumed in Deuteronomy 17, they were wrong in asking for one. It was sinful of them to ask for one because of the way that they did it. That is their motives behind it. Look at chapter 8, verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them." God's saying, listen, they're asking for a king, but what I'm telling you is I'm looking in at their hearts, and their hearts are asking for the wrong reason. They didn't want a king because they wanted someone to lead them to be faithful to God, right? God says they want a king because they're stubborn. They want to be autonomous without God. Okay, that's why He says in verse 7, don't worry, Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. In verses 10 through 18, Samuel tells them that through a king they will not achieve this autonomy. They want to be away from or out from underneath the rule of God. Samuel says, it's not going to happen. Instead, what's going to happen is the king will corrupt himself and he will oppress you. Look at verse 18, chapter 8. Then you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourself, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. The kind of king that you want will only spell disaster because he will have absolute power over you. Nonetheless, the people's heart are set. Look at verse 19. Nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us. That we also may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. You see what's going on here? Now we see the motives. We didn't see it before. God's saying, They rejected me. And Samuel's saying, well, I don't really see that. I see they're asking for a king, but how are they rejecting you? But now we see. We want to be, do you see that in verse 19? We, or verse 20? We want to be like the other nations, we want to be like everyone else no longer their desire to be holy like God is holy and to have someone lead them in that way. Here we see why God said in verse 7 that they were rejecting Him. People wanted to be like the nations. And so, the people get to make a choice. They get to choose their king and they choose Saul. Why? Chapter 9, verse 2, because he was tall and handsome. They wanted to have a good-looking man to lead their nation, to represent them to the other nations, to lead them into battle. And God graciously, graciously grants them a king, even though they asked for what God already intended to provide for them, but they asked for it in the wrong way. God mercifully gave them the king that they wanted, despite their sins. And God is most gracious and kind to Israel when He finally removes Saul from being king over them. In chapters 13 to 15, Saul disobeys God. And so God puts an end to his strange kind of democracy and continues with His original plan to choose His own king for the nation. Look at chapter 13, verse 13. 13, 13. Samuel said to Saul, You have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God which He commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for Himself a man after His own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as ruler over His people because you have not kept what the Lord God commanded you. God, God has chosen someone else for Israel. Israel got to choose their king initially, but God saying, listen, Saul was not your man. What was it that Saul did, by the way? Remember? Okay. What was it? He offered a sacrifice, but wasn't it with the um, the Ammonites? I think. I guess I I should have looked up the. But you remember when he was supposed to kill everybody, including the animals? Amalekites. Thank you. And, so, and uh, Samuel said, "So uh, how did it go? Well, I killed them all except for the king and." And some of their... We we're going to offer those animals to God. That's all right, right? Samuel said, no, it's not. And, um, and I think it was that, that time that he was promised that he would not um, have the kingdom continue. God instead had chosen a man after his own heart. Saul was bis- disobedient to God right from the beginning, but that was kind of the, the crowning moment or the decrowning moment, we could say. And now the, the people are, are going to have to endure the bitter fruit of their choice as a civil war ensues. And Saul is not quick to give up his kingdom when Samuel says, you're, you're going to have your kingdom given to someone else. Maybe a point of application would help at this time. Sometimes it's easy for us to become enamored with all that the earthly kingdoms run on. The, the power and the might and the cunning and the prestige But in God's kingdom, God is insistent on doing things by His own wisdom. Again, back to the Word of God. And He often does things differently than we would expect. He chooses someone of lower stature that we wouldn't choose. He does it in a way that that focuses on His glory and not man's glory. God intentionally governs His kingdom in a way that makes it clear to everyone that He is great and He's worthy of all the glory, not the King. Well, in 1 Samuel 16 through the end of 2 Samuel, we have David's story. David's story begins in chapter 15. God had rejected Saul as Israel's king. And now he'll choose a king who fits his desires, what God wanted and portray the characteristics that God is looking for. Look at chapter 16, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, Bethlehemite for I have selected the king for myself among his sons. The difference here in this choice of a king is that God is the one who chooses, not the people, right? Look at what God tells Samuel in verse 7. He says, "...do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature." Does that sound familiar? Chapter 9, verse 2. "...don't look at his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For God sees, not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart." God doesn't want a king who looks all good and buttoned up on the outside and maybe who's fit for battle in a military way. Instead, he wants someone who's already obeying the word of God. The most important part about being a king, he wants someone who's obeying his word. Someone who loves him supremely with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength. God is looking somewhere else than where the people were looking. It was on the inside. Only one who, who God, who loves God like that will be suited to rule His people. There's a number, number of other things that we could point out about David, including where he is from. Bethlehem, verse 4. The point is made over and over again in this chapter and the next that David is a shepherd by trade. And then when David is anointed as king in verse 13, the Spirit of God comes upon him, the theocratic anointing and we understand that that many of these references point forward to our great shepherd that that he would be also from bethlehem and he would lead his people he would lead them to quiet waters david in many ways points to christ the great shepherd the great king well, we can read of David defeating God's enemies in chapter 17. Goliath, of course. We can read of his sufferings in chapter 19. We can read his welcoming those in distress in chapter 22, his saving the people of God in chapter 23, his fear of the Lord in chapters 24 and 20 to 26, his befriending of Gentiles in chapter 27, and his suffering at the hands of the Gentiles in chapters 29 to 30. And all of these, I think, are meant to show us that David is what God said he was, which is a man after God's own heart. The kind of king that God wanted. We'll turn to 2 Samuel chapter 5. Definitely learn a lot about David as he's running from Saul and that he will not kill the Lord's anointed. He will not take the throne on his own time, but rather he's going to wait till God gives it to him. We can learn a lot about that. But here in 2 Samuel 5, we have a great climax in the story of Israel. David finally takes his rightful rule after much um, running from Saul. He takes his rightful place as ruler and establishes his kingdom in Jerusalem as the capital. And then in chapter 6, we have an even greater climax because that's when you just look in the, the... the theme or the the note there in the top of your chapter, we have the Ark of the Covenant being brought to Jerusalem. The Ark of the Covenant was a chest that in which was kept um, the scrolls the the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible, but also it was kept within the most holy place of the Tabernacle. And it represented where God would come to the people on the earth. He would meet with His people there. It had on top of it, of course, the mercy seat, showing that God would, would um, accept the atonement of His people when the, a proper sacrifice was given. And so we have an, a new climax. David takes the rule, chapter 5, he takes the throne. Chapter 6, the ark comes. God's presence is there. And then we have another great climax in chapter 7. Chapters 5, 6, and 7 are like a great crescendo in an in a orchestral piece or in a, symph- in a symphony. Each one more dramatic than the next. And what's going on in chapter 7? Chapter 7 is what's known as the, the inauguration of the Davidic covenant. Now, God has not abandoned His covenant to Abraham or, or to Noah, by that, for that matter, He's not done with that covenant. He's still going to follow through. But now he makes a new covenant that we call the Davidic covenant. Look at it in verse 1. Now it came about when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in the house of Cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that's in your mind, for the Lord is with you. Notice that in verse 1, it's David and the people that have rest. And now David wants to do something for God. He's saying, this doesn't make sense. This isn't good that the Ark of the Covenant doesn't have a house for itself. We're all settled. But the Ark of God is not. And So he wants to build a temple, a permanent structure, in which the Ark of the Covenant can reside. But you remember how this goes. God sends His prophet back to David to deliver this message to him. And he says it's not time, David, to build a temple. Look at verse 11. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies, the Lord also declares to you that the Lord, David, will make a house for you. You, David, want to make a house for me, but I want to make a house for you. Now, the difference is God's using the house in a different way. He's not saying, I want to build a place where you can permanently reside. He's saying, I want to build a dynasty for you that your family will go on and on for generations. In fact, for generations that will not end. Look at verse 12. When your days are complete, David, and when you lie down with your fathers, I will rise up your descendant after you. You will come forth. Uh, who will come forth from you? And I will establish His kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. Notice what he says here: not for many generations to come, or for as long as Israel stays in it. He says forever. I'm building a house for you forever, David. So God has a different meaning, doesn't He? When God talks about a house, He's saying a kingdom that will endure and have no end. It's an eternal kingdom, and that's quite a promise. This house, of course, goes through the person of Jesus Christ. This dynasty actually comes to the person of Jesus Christ, one of David's descendants. He is this descendant of David whose throne and rule over the people of God will see no end. God will preserve His people through David's family. Hebrews 3:6 says that Christ is faithful as a son over God's house, and we are His house if we hold to our courage, and the hope of which we boast. So David is a key character in the story of Samuel, of the books of Samuel, but he's not the most important part. He's not the final seed. He's not the final Messiah. As a great king. As great as king as he was, in fact, the best of all kings up to the time of our Savior, he was still a sinner. And so David only points forward to the true king of Israel. And so the rest of Second Samuel shows that David could not be that king. David was not the one that was promised in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. You remember when there's a curse given? Satan said, listen, the, the seed of Eve... He's going to crush your head. You're going to bruise his heel. That's not David he's talking about. David was not that one. And the reason we know that is because at the end of Second Samuel, we see the exploits of David, the sin of David. It's, David didn't handle his family very well. David, before that, even... You remember, the, the great sin that we all remember is, is the sin with Bathsheba, the killing of Uriah, the cover-up to follow... Then the exposing of it, the consequences that came from it, and then I think one of those consequences it wasn't stated by God, but one of those consequences was that Absalom would not be called to the carpet because of his sin. Why? Because David wasn't called to the. I mean, David recognized his own sin. He didn't see himself as a quality leader. Like if he said, "Well, you know, you shouldn't really be," like I say, "Well, Dad, what about?" You and Bathsheba, what about killing Uriah? And so he was, I think, fearful to step up and do what was right. In many ways, acting like Eli was with his sons, not correcting them, not bringing them to justice, instead letting them go. And as a result, David was on the run. Chapters 15 through 24 of Second Samuel, that's what it's all about. Absalom's chasing. I'm going to be the king. He had to, at times, pretend like he was a crazy man in order to avoid, um, in order to avoid a battle. David was, yes, a great king, but he was not the final king. He's not the king that we we need. We need someone who's not a sinner. We need someone who comes from God, who's chosen by God, but we need one who is God. Because only one who can rule perfectly will be able to rule us. Rule us in justice and peace. And that day is coming. Jesus will take that throne again one day when He comes back and reigns on on this earth in the Millennial Kingdom on David's throne in Zion. And that day is coming. That's the day we have to look forward to. The story of Samuel... Is a story of God's rule over His people through the king that He chooses. And it's really part of a larger story that God is giving to us. And that is that, that God is the one who has the best view or the best idea of who should reign over us. not wrong to have kings. It's just not ideal. That is, uh, yes, while we're here, while we have rulers, that's great. God uses them to lead us and to protect us from evil and to promote good, but we need a better king. That's what it leaves this kind of t- this this bitter taste in our mouth. Like even David, as great as he is, all the other kings in the books of the kings are are compared or contrasted to David's rule, aren't they? That they did like their father David, or they didn't do like their father David. And yet, even that great king, we find almost half of the book of Second Samuel is all about is sin and the consequences that come from it. And so we need a better king. And we have one in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we pray that You would help us to see the bigger picture as we go through. We've heard many of these stories in Sunday school, and and certainly there's much truth that we can gain from them, but we don't want to see them um, myopically, but rather... We want to see them in light of the big picture. That is that you are uh, setting up a kingdom. You're, you're bringing in citizens of that kingdom day after day until that day when that kingdom will be full of people from every tribe, kin- kindred, tongue, and nation. Where we will all, with one voice, sing to our great King. Hallelujah, what a Savior! What a great King and a great rule we will have with Him over us because He will rule in righteousness and justice. And there will never be any sin that comes from Him. And Lord, we at that time as the church will be free from sin as well. And so we look forward to that day. We pray that You would send it quickly. Send our Savior to bring justice upon the earth. Lord, vindicate Yourself. Vindicate us. Show us to be true as followers of You. And we pray that You would help us to be faithful until that time. In Jesus' name, Amen.